Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. The Apostle Paul dogmatically declares that God sovereignly elects some people to be saved. And the longest, strongest passage in all of the New Testament on that subject, Romans chapter 9, he emphatically, dogmatically declares that God is sovereign in the area of salvation. He makes the statement that God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. If that's not bad enough, he then goes so far as to say, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. And you cannot contemplate the doctrine of election as taught in the Scriptures without asking the question, well, if God elects some to be saved, then does he elect some to be lost? I mean, is it that men are not saved because they are not elect? In Romans chapter 9, Paul contemplates that possibility. In chapter 9, verse 22, he says, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared before him beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Those verses in Romans 9 he contemplates the possibility that God could deliberately create a vessel destined from destruction. But notice, he only asks the question. He never really gets around to answering it. He draws back from concluding what could popularly be called double predestination. He stops short of going that far. But we're still left with the question, aren't we? If election is true, why are some not saved? To ask that question another way, is it that some are not saved because they are not elect? If you believe in election, then what happens to man's responsibility? Those are tough questions that Paul faces head on in the latter part of Romans chapter 9. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 9 and let's look at his answer to this side of the question of election. I'm going to begin reading in Romans chapter 9, verse 30. We're going to go into chapter 10. Paul says, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness? even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, 
pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness? Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but, as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scriptures say, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All the verses that I've just read, those in Romans 9 and in Romans 10, actually comprise one unit of Scripture. This unit is introduced back in chapter 9, verse 30, when Paul asked the question, What shall we say then? in light of what he has taught in the earlier verses of chapter 9 concerning God's election, he then asks the question, is it that Gentiles who were without the law have found righteousness, whereas the Jews who have the law of righteousness have not found righteousness? In other words, why is it that some people are lost? As I understand this unit, there are actually two parts to this. The first are the verses in chapter 9, and the second is the verses I read in chapter 10, namely verses 1 to 13. So I want us to begin by looking at the end of chapter 9, where Paul answers the question, why Israel did not find justification, why they did not become righteous before God. Notice that he starts out just saying that that is the case. Gentiles got saved, whereas Jews didn't. Look at verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. So he's saying... Here we have this interesting situation. The Gentiles who weren't trying to pursue righteousness found it. 
And the Jews who had the law of righteousness end up unrighteous. There's a sense in which the early part of Romans chapter 9 is looking at the subject of election from God's point of view. These verses introduce the subject of election from man's point of view. Just look at the situation. Here the Gentiles now are righteous and the Jews aren't. The question I have asked repeatedly thus far is, why is that? Well, Paul answered. He answered in verse 32. Why, he asked, and then answers his own question. Because they did not seek it by faith, but, as it were, by the works of the law. Paul says, the reason they did not get saved is because they did not believe. I know that's simple. I know you've heard it before. I want to say that again. In the discussion, in the longest discussion in all of the Bible on the subject of election, when Paul gets down to answering the question, why is it that the Jews did not get saved? Here's his answer. Why? Verse 32. Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. They stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, and he quotes Isaiah chapter 28, Behold, I laid in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to sin. Now, Here's the situation. The Jews had the scripture. They had the law. Those scriptures taught them that they had to believe in order to be declared righteous. Genesis chapter 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So that law, the Torah, the writings of Moses, that they had taught them that they needed to trust God in order to be declared righteous. But what Paul is saying is, they did not believe. As a matter of fact, and he quotes here, uh, Isaiah chapter 28, it says they stumbled at the stumbling stone. And he is taking the phrase stumbling stone from a verse in Isaiah 28, which actually refers to the Messiah. And then he actually quotes Isaiah 28:16. Behold, I laid in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. That is, in the context of Isaiah 28, God is saying he put a stone, that is the Messiah, in Israel. And rather than using it as a stepping stone, it became to them a stumbling stone. But it says if they had believed on him, they would not be put to shame from having stumbled over it. So, based on these verses, I think I would have to conclude this. An interesting little theological twist. Seems to me that the first part of Romans chapter 9 is teaching that some are justified because they were elected, selected by God. But he gets down to the end of chapter 9 and he is teaching the non-elect or non-election, does not account 
for damnation. Why do some get saved? Romans says, Romans 9 teaches, because God chose them to be saved. Well, then why do others not get saved? Is it because God didn't choose them? And the biblical answer is no. It's because they didn't believe. Now, that's what this passage is teaching. If someone ever asks you, do you believe in election? If you believe the scripture, you're forced to say yes. If they say, does that mean that some people don't go to heaven because they're not elect? You say no. The reason people don't go to heaven is because they choose not to trust Jesus Christ. Now, what's the verse for that? I just showed you. Romans chapter 9, verse 32. Why are Gentiles saved and Jews not saved? Why? Verse 32, because they did not seek it by faith. That's why. You underscore that. You remember it. The first thing Paul establishes in this passage is that the reason some people are not justified is because they chose not to believe. Instead of believing on Christ and not being put to shame, they stumbled over him. There is a popular cliche which goes something like this. The elect are the whosoever wills, and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. You ever heard that? It's half true. The first part of it is not true. The elect are not the whosoever wills. The elect are first and foremost the ones God chose. But the last part of that is right. According to Romans chapter 9, specifically verse 32, the non-elect are the whosoever will not. So why are people lost? Answer, they chose not to believe. That's the first thing Paul said. Now, there's actually no chapter break here. There shouldn't be. Paul pursues this subject further, and he says, a second thing. I think at this juncture we need to ask the question. All right, if they are lost because they didn't believe, question, why didn't they believe? I mean, if that's all you got to do, why didn't they do it? For that, you've got to understand what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. He begins his second point by saying, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He gets very tender. He addresses them as brethren. He expresses the feeling of his heart, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. These are his fellow countrymen, his kinsmen. He does not come at this with just cold, calculated logic. He comes at this with the human touch and says, look, I want them to be saved just like everybody else. Notice anything different about chapter 10, verse 1? Thus far, we have been discussing the subject of righteousness. Now, all of a sudden, Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now, I know we, in the American church, use those two terms interchangeably. We speak of being saved most often, and every once in a while, we talk about being justified. But as I have pointed out before, 
There is a vast difference between those two words in the New Testament. You're going to properly study the Bible. You need to be very careful about the way you handle words. Just because a word is used one way in one passage does not mean that it's used the same way in another passage. To be most accurate, you need to first of all figure out how a particular word is used in the book in which you find it. Another author may use it another way. Matter of fact, the same author in a different context may use it in a different way. At this point, I want to just pause for a second and remind you that in the book of Romans, the word saved doesn't mean what we normally think it means. We normally use the word saved in popular religious evangelical circles to refer to justification. In the book of Romans, there is a difference between justification and salvation. I mean, that is real easy to prove. Simply look at chapter 5, verse 9. Paul makes a clear distinction in the book of Romans between the two. He says, much more than having now been justified by his blood. That's past tense. We shall be saved, that's future tense, from wrath through him. Now that verse proves as clearly as any in the book that there is a difference and a distinction between justification and salvation. Actually, the problem is the word wrath. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The problem in the book of Romans is how to get men saved from wrath. The problem he starts out with in chapter 1, verse 18, is that men are sinners and the wrath of God rests upon them. Now, how? Do we rescue men from the wrath of God? Step one is to get them justified. When they trust in Jesus Christ, they are declared righteous. Chapter 5, verse 9 is a pivotal verse. It says, now having been justified by faith, we shall be saved from wrath, more, through him. And then he goes on to say in chapter 5, Verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And then, in the latter part of chapter 5, Paul begins to explain that when we were justified, we received new life. And in chapters 6, 7, and 8, he describes how you can experience that new life in Christ. And, though he never says it, by implication, he is teaching, you can be delivered from the wrath of God. So salvation in the book of Romans is not what we normally think of as I have been saved. Salvation in the book of Romans is I am being saved. Now let me explain. Salvation in the New Testament is in three parts. Half, I have been saved from the penalty of sin, present, I am being saved from the power of sin, future, I will be saved from the presence of sin. We use the word saved only of phase one, I have been saved. 
The New Testament uses it of all three. What I'm telling you is that in the book of Romans, phase one is called justification. I am declared righteous. And phase two is the, is, is you, the word Paul uses to describe that is salvation. Meaning, I am being saved from the power of sin. So that Romans 3 and 4 and the first part of 5 is talking about justification by faith. And Romans 6, 7, and 8 is talking about being saved from wrath. That is, if you live in sin, God gets angry. Point of wrath. Read the Old Testament, that becomes explicitly clear. God gets angry at his children who do not obey him. Now, with all that in mind, look at Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He says, what I really want is not that they just get justified, but that they would get saved as well. I'd like to see them have the whole thing, he's telling us. Well, why don't they? Well, he says, verse 2, let me explain. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He says, you know, I want Israel to be saved. It's the desire of my heart. But he said, they have a zeal. Boy, are they zealous. But it is not according to knowledge. Do the Jews have a zeal for God? The Old Testament they did. The New Testament they did. Many till this day do. They definitely have a zeal for God. They don't have a zeal for idols. They have a zeal for God. They want to know the God of the Bible. At least they have a zeal for his law. A young Jewish boy who trusted Jesus Christ wrote his rabbi to tell him. And in the return letter, the rabbi said to this boy, and I quote, The basic question about religion is how to elevate man and bring him into closer relationship with God. We believe that God revealed to us in the Torah, that is the law of Moses, how he wants us to live so that we can be in harmony with his divine purpose. Our role and religious purpose is to obey God's laws, to love him and to obey him. We exercise our free will to proper intention and through having done the good deeds and are elevated so that becoming progressively easier and more natural to continue to do good and to resist evil. Rabbi is explaining to this little Jewish boy what Judaism is about. What Judaism is about is obeying God's laws. They have a zeal for God. But notice Paul says, not according to knowledge. They weren't doing it properly. They were rather going about, he says, to establish their own righteousness. Look at verse 3. He says, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and in seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. So, they have a zeal, but it is not according to knowledge. Consequently, it can be destructive. The greater the intensity of zeal, the void of true knowledge, somebody has said, the more damage it does to itself and to others. So they have zeal, 
but it is not according to knowledge. Now, question. What didn't they understand? All explained. Verse 4. 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is what they didn't understand. He says in verse 3, they didn't submit themselves to the righteousness of God, and now he explains it. This is what they were ignorant of. This is what they did not do. The problem is that Romans 10.4 is one of the most debated verses in all of the book. Clearly one of the most debated verses in all of this section of Romans. The problem is the little word in, E-N-D. There are three possible meanings of that word in this verse. One is that the word in means termination. Those who take that view interpret the verse to mean that Christ abolished the law. He was the termination of it. The second possible interpretation is that the word in means fulfillment. Those who take that view say that Christ fulfilled the requirements of the law. The third view is that the word in means goal. In other words, Christ was the aim and the object and the goal for which the law intended us to come. Now, candidly, all three of these possibilities would be legitimate. All three could be a valid interpretation of this verse. After wrestling with this passage, I have concluded that the third of these is the one that is true in this passage. I believe there is truth to the others, especially like the first one, that Christ abolished the law. I think Paul teaches that. I think he teaches it in Romans. But in this passage, I think he is saying that what the Jews did not understand is that Jesus Christ was the end of the law. They went to the Old Testament and they missed it. As I pointed out a while ago, the Old Testament teaches Abraham believed God and it was declared to him for righteousness. They totally missed that and saw something else. What they missed was that what the Old Testament intended is that in terms of righteousness, they should trust in Jesus Christ. They should trust God. Now, let me explain that a little further. What Paul does at this point in the passage is he explains it. He says... The real problem is this. There are two kinds of righteousness. And beginning at verse 5, he explains that. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. Now underline that. There is a righteousness which is of the law. Then he quotes Leviticus 18.5. The man who does those things shall live by them. There is a righteousness which comes by doing the law. That is, if you kept the law, all that God said do, you would end up righteous, right? There is a law righteousness. But there's a second kind of righteousness, verse 6. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Now, if you've got a pen, underline righteousness, which is of the law in verse 5, and righteousness, which is of faith in verse 6. There are two kinds of righteousness. Now, the problem with the first kind of righteousness is that it's unattainable. I mean, granted, if you could keep the law, you'd be righteous, right? 
problem with that is, who can do it? I know that's what everybody thinks. problem is, nobody can pull it off. On the way to the service tonight, I saw a bumper sticker. This is the way everybody thinks. It says this. If you do a good deed, get a receipt, just in case heaven is like the IRS. I understand that that's really a takeoff on the IRS, but isn't that the way people think? Do a little good deed here, do a little good deed there, do a little righteousness here, you'll end up righteousness, you show receipt, and you get into heaven, right? Now, Paul says there is that kind of righteousness. Only by implication, what he's teaching in this passage is it's unattainable. Nobody makes it. But there is that kind of righteousness, theoretically. There's a second kind of righteousness. He says in verse 6, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now what Paul is doing is this. He is quoting... Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. Only as he quotes the passage, he applies the passage. And the application that he's making to faith righteousness is in parenthesis. So one more time, let's read these verses. Romans 10, 6. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend up to heaven? Now that's a quotation from Deuteronomy. Only Paul applies it to us and says, that is to bring Christ down from above. All right, who's going to go up to heaven to bring the Messiah down? Well, you don't have to do that because he's already incarnate. Then Deuteronomy says, verse 7, who will descend into the abyss? Actually, Deuteronomy says, who will ascend into the sea? And Paul changes it to the word abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, you don't have to do that because Christ is not only incarnate, but he is risen. But what does it say? And he quotes Deuteronomy. The word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. And he applies that to faith righteousness. And he says, the word of faith which we preach is in your mouth and in your heart. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he applies all of this to um, salvation by faith. Now, he's making two points here. One is that there is a righteousness by faith. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It's what the book of Romans is about in the opening chapter. That if you trust in Jesus Christ, God will declare you righteous. The second point he's making in these verses is this, and that is, unlike law righteousness, this one is accessible. It's as close as your mouth. It's as close as your heart. For to exercise faith, all you have to do is believe in your heart. And to confess, all you have to do is open your mouth. So, he is saying in these verses, there are two kinds of righteousness. There is a law righteousness. And though he doesn't say it, by implication, that one's inaccessible. There is a faith righteousness, which is very <clears throat> accessible. It's as close as your mouth and your heart. 
Now what he's saying is, Israel was ignorant of all of this. They didn't understand all of this. All of this was in the Old Testament. Christ was the end of the law for righteousness. He was the goal the Old Testament was striving towards. But the reason they didn't believe is because they didn't understand. They didn't understand it all. They were ignorant of God's righteousness. That is, God's righteousness by faith. Now, a couple of things we have to clarify. In fact, the rest of this passage is given to clarify some things that he's now said. Romans 10.9 has often been used to teach all kinds of things, like, in order to get to heaven, you have to make Christ the Lord of your life. After all, it says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, Jesus as Lord, right? This verse has also been used to say that uh, in order to get to heaven, you have to make a public confession of Jesus Christ with your mouth. And he teaches that in order to be saved, you've got to confess Christ. Is that what this passage is teaching? Now, let me clarify just a couple of things before we look at the rest of the passage and put all this together. For one thing, the verse does not say if you confess Jesus as Lord. The word as is not in the English text, and it is not in the Greek text, and it ought not be there. This verse is not saying you have to confess Jesus as Lord. It is saying if you confess the Lord Jesus. The word Lord means God. You remember in the Old Testament, the Jews came to the uh, word God, Yahweh, and they wouldn't pronounce it. It was too holy. So they put in its place the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the word Lord. So in the New Testament, they just picked up the practice and they used Lord to refer to Jesus as God. Now that's not some off-the-wall interpretation, folks. The interpretation I just gave to the word Lord has been the standard traditional interpretation of the word Lord in the New Testament for a long time. No less than such great scholars as B.B. Warfield and J. Gretchen Mason and Bishop Westcott, and even more recently in the scholarly work by Colin Brown. All of them come to this passage, and that's what they say this word means. <clears throat> so this passage isn't saying you've got to make Jesus the master of your life in order to get to heaven. Matter of fact, what it says is, verse 9, you believe in your heart, you will be saved, and that needs to be clarified, which is precisely what he does in the next verse. But before I get to that part, let me just say one other thing about Lord. Lord here clearly means God, not Master, as is proven by the fact that in verse 13, he says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, and that is a quote from Joel 2.32. And in Joel 2.32, the word Lord clearly means God. Not so this passage is not teaching that you've got to make Christ the Lord of your life in order to get to heaven. Well, is it teaching you've got to confess with your mouth to be saved? And the answer to that is yes, but you've got to understand what saved means. You see, Paul has taken a passage from Deuteronomy and he's tried to apply it to faith righteousness. And in the process... <clears throat> He makes the statement in verse 9, which is the application of Deuteronomy 30. And now he has to clarify. So that is precisely what he does. Look at verse 10. For 
As I've told you before, and will tell you again, the word for means I'm about to explain what I just said. Let me clarify. With the heart, one believes to righteousness, and with the mouth, confession, is made to salvation. There are two clarifications. First of all, verse 9 got it backwards. You don't confess with your mouth first and then believe in your heart. The right order is you believe in your heart and then you confess with your mouth, right? So the first thing he does in verse 10 is correct the order. Now, why did he get the order wrong in the first place? The answer is he is quoting Deuteronomy 30 and applying it to faith righteousness, and in Deuteronomy the mouth came before the heart. But in verse 10, Paul is done with the application. He is now entering into the explanation, and he straightens out the order. Furthermore, he straightens out the point he's making. Folks, what I'm about to say is important if you're going to understand this passage and be delivered from some erroneous conclusions. You must hear what I'm about to say. It is very, very, very important. Ready? Look at verse 10. With the heart, one believes to righteousness. What does that mean? Righteousness is justification. I am declared righteous. So the minute I believe in my heart, I am declared righteous. Right? And look at the next part of verse 10. And with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. Ah, those are two different things. Did you hear that? Those are two different things. All you have to do to be declared righteous is believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross, and that he arose from the dead, and you are declared righteous. But to be saved, you've got to confess with your mouth. Later explained in verse 13 as calling on the name of the Lord. You get that? Verse 10 straightens out any false impressions that Paul gave in applying Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the explanation is simply this. There is a difference between justification and salvation. If you want an illustration of salvation the way Paul is using it, I suggest you read the book of Judges. Remember what Israel did in the book of Judges? They sinned. That led to slavery. Then they cried out to God with supplication. And God sent along a judge who saved them. Know what they did? They went right back and sinned again, which led to slavery again, which led them to cry out to God again, and God saved them again. Marvelous. You know what they did? They went right back and sinned again, which led to slavery again, which meant they cried out, they called on the Lord, they confessed with their mouth, and God saved them. And that's what he's talking about. Let me clarify. In order to get to heaven, you have to do one and only one thing. It is believe in Jesus Christ. It is faith alone in Christ alone. Period. You are declared righteous at that point. That saves you from the penalty of sin. If you are to be saved from the power of sin, you must learn to confess and call on the name of the Lord. Well, that's what he's saying. And he's saying, I want Israel 
to be saved, not just justified, saved. Now, I'm telling you, the book of Romans is tough stuff. You notice that? The logic is closely woven. I mean, he starts here, and he goes to here, and he goes to here, and he goes trailing off to here, and you sometimes forget where we started, right? What are we really talking about in this passage? Well, it depends on how far back you want to go. Ultimately, we're talking about election. But in the immediate context, what we're saying is that there are two kinds of righteousness. That's what we started with in verse 5. There's a law righteousness, and there is a faith righteousness. And that's his immediate point. And his immediate point is that law righteousness is unattainable. It's inaccessible. But faith righteousness is very accessible. I can get to that. So let me just illustrate that it's as close as your mouth, as close as your heart, that close. Faith righteousness is as close as your heart. That's pretty close, folks. You know, of course, I love bananas. I'm bananas about bananas. But they're not always close. You've got to go to the supermarket and buy it. Well, I once went to a little island down in the Caribbean called Dominica. Not the Dominican Republic, Dominica. It's a little backward, undeveloped island. Close to paradise is what it is. Because the only product that island has is banana. They got banana trees all over the place. I mean, you ride down the road and there are bananas everywhere. On the ground, in the trees, on the trucks. I mean, bananas are very accessible. Well, all the saying that faith righteousness is like bananas on the island of Dominica. It's as close as your heart. Just reach out and grab one. Law righteousness is unattainable. Faith righteousness, as close as your heart. Or there's the story I heard once about the little sailboat. Got caught in a stream and they drifted out too far into the ocean. Eventually ran out of water. When another ship came along, they said, quick, give us water. We're about to die. We don't have any water. And the other ship said, just let down your bucket. See, there was a stream of fresh water that came out of the Amazon and went all the way into the ocean. What they didn't know is that they were in that stream and all they, get, all they had to do to get fresh water was drop the bucket. It's that close. Now, that's Paul's point. Faith, righteousness is as close as your heart. Believe in your declared righteous. Confess and you're saved. There's one other point he makes in this passage. And that is, one other clarification, I should say. What he does at this juncture is he goes on to emphasize that all of this is universal. He's been talk- he started out talking about the Gentiles and the Jews. Now what he does is he describes this as being all universal. He says in verse 11, For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. We saw that before from Isaiah. The little phrase, whoever, in the Greek text is all who. Now, the next couple of statements all begin with four. They explain each other. Well, there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. That's 
where we started out in chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, talking about the fact that the Jews did not get this righteousness and the Gentiles did. Now he's saying, look, there's no distinction. He says in verse 12, there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. Earlier in the book he says there's no distinction between the Greek and the Jew because all have sinned. Now he's saying there's no distinction, there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Both can be saved by faith. Now he explains that. For the same Lord is over all, is rich to all who call upon him. The same God of Jew and Greek. says in verse 13, let me explain that. For whoever, in the Greek text that literally says all who, call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he wraps this up saying it's as close as your mouth and your heart and it's for everybody. Verse 11, he says, all who. In verse 12, he says, there's no distinction. In verse 12, he says, the same Lord over all is rich to all. In verse 13, he says, all who call. So the point in these last verses is that this is universal and it is accessible to everybody. All can be saved. An elderly preacher was once um, imagining that when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, there was a large crowd around him. And uh, he envisioned a man making his way through the crowd. And he said, Peter, do you think there's hope for me? I am the one who made the crown of thorns that placed it upon Christ's brow. Do you think I can be saved? Yes, said Peter. Whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. Another pushed his way up and said, I'm the man who took the reed out of Christ's hand and drove it down upon the cruel crown of thorns. Do you think he will save me? Yes, said Peter. He told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He did not mean any to be left out. Salvation is for you. He did not come to condemn men. He came to get his arm under the vilest sinner and lift them toward heaven. Still another individual, elbowed his way to Peter and said, I'm the Roman soldier who took the spear and drove it in his heart. Do you think there is hope for me? Yes, Peter said. There is a nearer way to reaching his heart than that. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's for everybody. Even those who literally, physically, Crucified the Son of God. Now, as I said a minute ago, Paul, in all of his writings, has a tendency to start out at one point and drift to another one and then to another one, and eventually you get a little fur from where you started. That is especially true in the book of Romans. So let me come back and summarize what I've said. In the context of the book of Romans, chapter 9 is saying, God sovereignly elects people to be saved. No escaping that. Then at the end of chapter 9, Paul introduces the question, what shall we say then? Why is it some are lost? And his answer to the question is this. Israel did not obtain faith righteousness because they did not Believe. That's Romans 9, 30 through 33. 
Why didn't they believe? His answer is, even though they had a zeal for God, they were still lost because they were ignorant of God's righteousness and God's salvation. It was close. Righteousness was as close as their heart. Salvation was as close as their mouth. And it was for all. But they missed it because they didn't believe. They didn't believe because they were ignorant of God's righteousness. Or to say the same thing another way, Israel did not obtain righteousness because they did not seek it by faith. They did not obtain to salvation because they were ignorant of God's message. Now in the overall context of Romans, the subject is election. Though there are other truths in this passage, the basic point Paul is making has to do with election. So let me conclude by talking about that. In a sense, Romans 9 1 through 29 is giving us election from God's point of view. God sovereignly elects some to be saved. The passage we've looked at today, Romans 9, 30 through 10, 13, is looking at it from man's point of view, and it's saying that man did not choose God. I began by asking the question, are people not saved because they are not elect? And the answer to that question is no. It is not that God did not select them. It is that they are lost because they did not select God. May I repeat that? It's the sum of all this passage. It's the sum of all these complicated ideas. Some are lost, not because God did not choose them, but because they did not choose God. There are actually two applications I would make to this passage. Number one is if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, do it. That's your responsibility. And you can do that. It's as close as your heart, you simply understand that you need a Savior because you're a sinner, that Jesus Christ died, that he arose, you're willing to place your faith and trust in Christ alone, plus nothing else, then God will give you faith righteousness. He will declare you righteous. The second application is that we as believers need to call on the Lord constantly that we might be delivered from the power of sin. Not just the penalty, the power. As we call on the Lord, in His grace, He delivers us again and again and again. But let me conclude by going back to the subject of election. Because that's the point. People are lost because they choose not to trust Jesus Christ. 
So just because God sovereignly elects some doesn't account for lostness. That comes because they didn't choose. Now let me illustrate it all. I heard this years ago, and I think, frankly, it probably puts it as well as any illustration on the subject of election I've ever heard. I want you to imagine that there is a prison and that everybody in it was guilty of a crime, crime worthy of death. And let's suppose that the governor of the state decided to pardon everybody in the prison. And he issued a decree that said, you're all free to go. And he dispatched a messenger to go tell them. They all gathered in the yard of the prison. And this ambassador from the governor said, open the gate. And he said to the prisoner, see it? It's open. You are free to go. And they all looked at him and said, go where? What a freedom. You're free to go. And they looked at him and said, you don't understand. We like it here. And he pleaded with them. He tried to persuade them, but nothing would do. So he went back to the governor and he said, hey, it's unbelievable. I, I, I told him what you said. I showed him the pardon. I showed him the open gate. And they wouldn't believe me. They're all still in prison. So the governor got in his limousine, drove to the prison, got all the prisoners assembled in the courtyard, and he personally picked out one, said, hey, look, I'm the governor. And uh, I want you to know it's really better on the outside. And after talking with him for a few minutes, the guy said, hey, I think you got something. I'll leave. And then the governor picked another one. And he said, hey, <laughs> I'm the governor. I've written the pardon myself. The gate's open and you can leave. And that one said, hey, I believe him. And he left too. Now, folks, that's a picture of election. You know what the problem is? We're all depraved, committed sinners. That's our problem. God has said, I'll pardon anybody that'll choose to trust my son. And you know what our response is? None seek after God. You don't understand, preacher. I like it here. You ever witness to somebody? They like their sin. They don't want to leave it. So God sends himself in the person of the Spirit. And the Spirit of God personally convicts us and persuades us and draws us. And we follow. And we are saved. We are freed. Here's the picture. Why are some saved? Answer, God chose us. God 
convicted us. God drew us. God saved us. Why are some lost? Because God didn't choose them. That isn't what he says. He stopped short of that. He said, no. The reason some aren't saved is because they chose not to be. They chose not to believe. They tried to establish their own righteousness. They're ignorant of faith righteousness. Don't you be in that crowd. You trust Christ. And have faith righteousness as close as your heart. Pray. Father, we thank you that you are just, sovereign, and gracious, all at the same time. We are aware that you have saved us and that it is your doing. We're also aware that we each have sinful, willful hearts that stubbornly refuse your grace. Thank you that you have chosen us we pray that you would grant us the grace, not just to trust you for salvation, but to call upon you that we might be truly delivered. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.